Well, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. It's been a rather long road, but the end is finally in sight. And I thank all of you who are patient and hardy enough, or perhaps I should say foolhardy enough, to have traveled it with me. And I must also thank the Institute of Policy Studies for forcing me to shake off my native sloth and crystallize my thoughts. Singapore is today in much better shape than in 1965. Our economy is more robust and diversified, linked by a network of free trade agreements to the major economies. The Singapore Armed Forces, SAF, is strong and deterrence keeps our neighborhood honest. We enjoy good relations with all the major powers. We have a wide and respected diplomatic network. Our city is safe with public services provided at a level of efficiency that is the envy of other cities. Of course, we are not perfect. And as the late Mr. Lee Kuan Yew has observed, Singaporeans are cha also champion grumblers. That we have this uh, dubious distinction is perhaps a measure of success. Some years ago, we had flash floods in Orchard Road. A Vietnamese friend happened to be in Singapore for an ASEAN meeting. He had read in the Straits Times about floods in Singapore. Where, he asked. Outside your hotel, I replied. He laughed. In Hanoi, we only call it floods when the water reaches our waist, he said. I am old enough to remember when we regularly had floods in my friend's definition. I can remember a poor, disorderly, dirty Singapore without a proper sewage system and clean water for every household. I can remember riots and curfew. But I probably belong to the last generation that has personal experience of such a Singapore. Fifty years is only the blink of an eye in the history of a country. Our survival, let alone success and prosperity, was not preordained. It was, in fact, most improbable. The result of the government and the people pulling together to defy the odds. Much sweat and sacrifice and a little luck. Can we cope with the many international and regional complexities of the post-Cold War world that previous lectures have outlined? Well, before I answer the question, let's remind ourselves of some of the enduring realities that confront a small city-state in Southeast Asia. The U.S. shrugs off political dysfunctionalities to remain the preeminent global power. China and Russia have endured traumas that would have caused small countries to vanish without a trace. Japan, Germany and South Korea have recovered from self-inflicted wounds that would have killed smaller countries. In Berlusconi's Italy, politics was theatre, but Italy remains a member of the G7. Cocooned by the EU, 
between 2010 and 2011, Belgium went without a government for almost 20 months. Indonesia absorbs governmental incoherence, governmental inefficiency and corruption, but remains relevant despite everything because it is big and rich in resources. Small states are vulnerable. The margin for error is narrow. The government's role is essential. Thanks to what was achieved over the last 50 years, the threat is no longer that we will disappear as a sovereign and independent country, although that can never be entirely discounted. The threat is now more insidious. The danger is that our autonomy could be compromised even though we remain formally independent and sovereign. We will still have a flag and a seat in the UN. No one will stop us from singing Majula Singapura. But if we are clumsy in our external relationships or mishandle our domestic politics, the freedom to decide our own destiny could be severely conscribed. And that is in fact the condition of many small states who are members of the UN. Small city-states have no intrinsic relevance to the workings of the international system. Relevance is an artifact created by human endeavor and having been created must be maintained by human endeavor. The world will probably get along fine without a fully sovereign and independent Singapore. We perform no function that we did not in some way serve as a British colony and as part of Malaysia. Autonomy has enabled us to raise the level at which we perform such functions and prosper. But there is little reason to assume that we cannot in some way serve these functions even if we were under someone's thumb. And it need not only be the panda's paw or the eagle's claw to which we may succumb. We are an anomaly in Southeast Asia. Singapore is a Chinese majority state in a region where typically the Chinese are a less than entirely welcome minority. We organize ourselves on the basis of multiracial meritocracy in a region where other countries, explicitly or implicitly, typically organize themselves on the basis of the dominance of one ethnic group or another. This confronts us with a paradox. An anomaly can only remain relevant, survive and prosper by continuing to be an outlier. We cannot be just like our neighbours. We cannot be only just as successful as our neighbours. If we are only just like them, why deal with us rather than bigger and more richly endowed countries? To be relevant, we have to be extraordinarily successful. But this does not endear us to our neighbours. The basic issue in relations with our immediate neighbours and in varying degrees with other countries in Southeast Asia is not what we do, but what we are. The implicit challenge that by its very existence, a Chinese-majority Singapore, organised on the basis of multiracial meritocracy, poses to systems organised on the basis of different 
and ultimately irreconcilable principles. That we have the temerity to be more successful adds to the offence. But we have no other choice. No one who is even minimally familiar with our neighbours should have any illusions that they mean to surpass us and put us in what they consider to be our proper place, which is not, believe me, where the sun shines on first. This attitude was virulently explicit when Dr. Mahathir was Prime Minister of Malaysia, but muted under Prime Minister Najib. Indonesia makes no secret of it, even though President Jokowi is not hostile to us. It is never absent, even when relations are at their friendliness, not because they necessarily hate us, but to validate their own systems. Now, this does not mean that we cannot cooperate with our neighbours. We must, we can, and we do. But we must cooperate from a position of strength. Strength is not to be defined in purely military terms. The SAF is, of course, vitally important. But strength, success, and relevance must, first of all, be defined in economic terms. To put it crassly, small countries will always have fewer options and operate on narrower margins than big countries. But rich small countries will have more options than poor small countries. Now, the management of the paradox I set out a moment ago lies at the heart of our foreign policy. It prescribes our most fundamental approaches, maintaining an omnidirectional balance in Southeast Asia by facilitating the engagement of all major powers in our region, while at the same time fostering regional cooperation through ASEAN, maintaining our economic edge, and keeping our powder dry. It's a delicate balancing act. What could make us trip and fall? To adapt, to adapt a phrase from the great American folk philosopher, Hogo, I have met the enemy and he is us. Now I'm quoting from a comic strip by the late Walt Kelly, but my point is a serious one. We can cope with the more complicated post-Cold War external environment, provided we get our internal environment right. A successful foreign policy must always and everywhere rest on a sound domestic foundation. There are three aspects, politics, policy, and social cohesion. Let me deal with each in turn. Politics. Ideally, politics should stop at water's edge. But this is an ideal realized nowhere on earth. It is therefore not surprising that in Singapore, partisan politics has begun to creep into foreign policy. Political debate over foreign policy is not necessarily a bad thing if it is conducted within and leads to a domestic consensus on the parameters of what is possible and not possible for a small city-state in Southeast Asia. In countries with long histories, partisan debates over foreign policy are generally conducted within such a framework of shared assumptions, often unconscious, 
shared assumptions on what ought to be in the fundamental interests of the country, irrespective of which party holds power. With only 50 years of history, I am not sure we have a framework of shared assumptions about the national interests in Singapore. Perhaps we will develop one in time. But so far, the manner in which the opposition has approached foreign policy does not inspire confidence that they have any concept of the fundamental national interest, the national interest that should hold irrespective of partisan ambition, or that they really understand Singapore's place in our region and the world. A few years ago, in 2003, Mr. Pritam Singh of the Workers' Party, who should have known better, asked a question in Parliament about our Middle East policies that could have stirred up the feelings of our Malay Muslim ground against the government. He did not do his homework. It was not difficult to demonstrate that Singapore has been consistently even-handed in our relations with Israel and Palestine. The Arab countries understand our position and have no issue with our relations with Israel. Some years before I retired, I was in an Arab country for talks with my counterpart. It happened to be during Operation Kaslet, the Gaza War of 2008 to 2009. The Israel Defense Force had moved into Gaza to stop rocket attacks against civilian targets in Israel. Horrific pictures of death and destruction were splashed across the front page of that country's English language newspaper, that Arab country's English language newspaper. I went to the talks expecting a year full about the iniquities of Israel. And I indeed got a year full for about five minutes. My counterpart spent the rest of our hour-long meeting talking about the threat that Iran's nuclear program and the Shia posed in the Middle East. And as he walked me out after the meeting, my counterpart whispered to me, tell your friend not to wait too long. Now, I don't think he was referring to the United States because America is his country's friend too. <laughs> if the Arab countries do not think that our relations with Israel and our position on, the Palestine, on Palestine are problems, why was the Workers' Party asking questions about our Middle East policy? Was it to try and stir our Malay Muslim ground against the government? Will Singapore benefit if Singaporean Muslims become alienated from the government or non-Muslim Singaporeans? The answers ought to be obvious. But the following year, in 2014, Mr. Singh again asked another question in Parliament about our Middle East policy that could have inflamed our Malay Muslim ground. Nor is the Workers' Party the only opposition party to play fast and loose with foreign policy for partisan purposes. On the 29th of January this year, coincidentally the, the day I delivered my first lecture in the series, the Straits Times published a letter from Mr. Paul Tambaya in his capacity as a member of the Central Executive Committee of the Singapore Democratic Party, SDP. The SDP has advocated a reduction in our defence budget in favour of health spending, and Dr. Tambaya was responding to a PAP MP's parliamentary speech about this policy. One of the arguments 
Dr. Tambaya and Vance, were in support of the SDP's position, were so breathtakingly naive or so breathtakingly irresponsible that it is worth quoting. And I will quote. I quote, Singapore has a long history of being non-aligned in our foreign policy, Dr. Tambaya wrote. Such an approach has served us well. Getting overly entangled in regional conflicts, especially through military means, may not be in the best interest of the people of Singapore. End of quote. Now, I agree that Singapore should not get entangled in military conflicts if at all possible. But the purpose of a strong SAF is to deter, to deter, that is to say, to prevent military conflicts from breaking out in the first place. And if deterrence should fail, to prevail. If the good doctor really thought that being non-aligned is an adequate substitute for deterrence through a strong SAF, you ought to consult a doctor of another sort without delay. <laughs> a psychiatrist. You cannot remain safe by shutting your eyes to unpleasant realities, lying low, and hoping for the best. Being non-aligned did not save Xianuk's Cambodia or Suvama Puma's Laos from getting entangled in military conflicts with very tragic consequences for their peoples. Contrary to what Dr. Tambaya seems to think, Singapore is a member of the non-aligned movement not because it makes us feel safe, but because we are vulnerable. It is precisely because a small city-state gives itself hostage to fortune if it ignores the possibility of military conflict that we cannot concede any forum to any possible adversary. If deterrence fails and conflict breaks out, we must mobilize the diplomatic support of the 120 members of NAM to try and shape a political context in the United Nations which will enable the SAF to do its job as expeditiously as possible. Every war must eventually end. The politi political context within which a war was fought will be a significant influence on whether the conflict will end on the best possible terms. Many wars have been won on the battlefield only to be lost at the negotiating table. War and diplomacy are not alternatives. They are different sides of the same coin that complement each other. We live in a region that for all the reasons I advanced in my previous lectures is going to become more uncertain. One of my previous lectures analyzed the strengths and limitations of ASEAN. Regional cooperation is not a substitute for a strong defense. It is the stability in relationships created by a credible deterrent force that makes regional cooperation possible. As our population ages, we will certainly need to devote more of our budget to healthcare and other social spending. The government has predicted by fiscal year 2020, healthcare spending alone will outstrip defense spending. How is this to be financed? Obviously, we will need to continue to grow to afford more social spending. We cannot live on our reserves indefinitely. But how are we going to grow in order to afford more social spending? 
The SDP and other opposition parties have never given any answer to this question that I have found convincing. And the results of the last general election and the recently concluded by-election suggest that my skepticism is shared by many. Dr. Tambaya's boss in the SDP, Mr. Chi Sunjuan, has written articles attacking our, attacking our free trade agreements as if the people of a small city-state could make a living by taking in each other's laundry. A city-state with a small domestic market has no other economic choice but to be open to the world. Openness could well accentuate our vulnerabilities. All the more reason why the insurance policy of a strong deterrent is vital. If a strong deterrent can be maintained at lower costs, well and good. But would we be a, a desirable economic partner or an attractive investment destination if we could not defend ourselves? Now this brings me to policy and the role of the civil service. The traditional role of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or MFA of every country is to be the principal interlocutor of the country with the world. This concept of diplomacy is obsolete. No MFA anywhere can now be the sole or even the main interlocutor of a country with the world. Of course, there are some things that only MFAs can do. But after the Cold War, the distinction that used to be made in international relations between high politics and low politics is blurring. Any MFA that tries to be a country's main interlocutor with the world is bound to fail its country. It can only pursue defensive interests, essentially just say no, because it will lack the domain knowledge to advance positive interests across the broad range of often highly technical issues that are now prominent on the international agenda, many of which span traditional bureaucratic boundaries. This is confronting civil services across the world with unfamiliar challenges. All domestic agencies now have to engage internationally. There is no important policy domain that is now entirely domestic. The only question is the degree to which an issue is international. Within a country's civil service, agencies are being compelled to work with each other in new ways. This requires not just new structures and processes, that's the easy part. More crucially, it requires them to learn new ways of thinking and acting. And this is difficult. Inertia is not a force to be underestimated in all bureaucracies. Any experienced civil servant anywhere can readily find reasons why something new should not be done and as effortlessly find ways of presenting existing practice as new. How does Singapore do? I can say accurately and without false modesty that the civil service of which I was proud to be a part does not do badly. We do better than other civil services in East Asia and generally better than many civil services across the world, including those of larger and more developed countries. But is this good enough for a small city-state in the more complicated external environment that we will face? There is room for improvement. 
a more uncertain external environment and the strategic imperative of avoiding being forced to make invidious choices or foreclose options in the midst of heightened US-China competition places a premium on what have always been imperatives for the foreign policy of a small city-state. Alertness, agility, and an appreciation of nuance. But there are certain features of the way in which our civil service is currently organized that may have begun to degrade these qualities at a time when they are becoming even more important. Now, I'm not referring to big decisions taken deliberately by the, our political leadership as foreign policy decisions or to decisions taken with consciousness of their external implications. Here, I think our current structures and processes do quite well. The challenge is more subtle. In a previous lecture, I argued that a new US-China's modus vivendi will not be determined by a deliberate process of negotiation, but will be the consequence of many ad hoc responses to situations taken at various levels and in different domains. Similarly, I am concerned about the accumulation of many small decisions, perhaps with no obvious foreign policy implications, taken by different parts of the civil service for sound institutional reasons, but the cumulative effect of which may one day place us in an external position that we do not want or intend to be. Although the civil service now stresses a whole or government approach, it is my impression that, left to its own devices, left to their own devices, agencies tend to take a more narrowly transactional approach in their institutional interests, and hence in some ways operate more in institutional silos today than when I joined the civil service. This degrades nimbleness, narrows vision, and is making us risk-averse. It's always safer to remain within institutional boundaries. It took me about a year or so to get an interagency consensus for Singapore to join the Kyoto Protocol on Climate Change. And this was an international agreement that imposed absolutely no obligations, absolutely no obligations on Singapore. And it took a year. We subsequently did very well in arriving at national positions for the complex negotiations in the Conference of Parties or COPs to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. In fact, this could serve as a model for interagency discussions on national positions. But this was after a deputy prime minister was placed in charge of the process. The issues in COPS certainly warranted that level of political attention. Most bureaucracies operate better top-down and we are no exception. But as our domestic politics places ever-increasing demands on our elected leaders, they will have less time to devote to lower-order decisions. Yet, it is the accumulation of such lower-order decisions that could lead us to places we do not want to go. Slowly, but I fear steadily, the central organizing concept of our civil service is eroding the alertness, eroding the eligibility, and eroding the appreciation of nuance that we will need to cope with a more complex external environment. Let me give you three examples. 
first. In 2011, MFA, our MFA, concluded that Singapore should try to become an observer in the Arctic Council. Global warming could eventually change sea routes with potentially profound implications for us. It was only prudent to have early warning of what would become possible in the Arctic. The criteria for observership spanned several agencies. Their responses were lukewarm. It was the long odds against a small tropical island succeeding and the lack of any immediate international immediate institutional advantage that put them off. So MFA decided to go ahead alone and place one of our most wily and experienced ambassadors in charge. Only when his efforts began to gain traction did the other agencies come on board. And Singapore was elected as an observer in 2013. Second example. In 2014, the SAF conducted a military exercise with the People's Liberation Army, or PLA, in the Nanjing military region in China. We must build a relationship with the PLA as part of our overall engagement with a rising China. The Nanjing military region is responsible for Taiwan, with which we have a long-standing, with which we have long-standing unofficial ties. The headquarters of the PLA Navy's East Sea Fleet, which covers the Senkaku or Tiaoyu Islands, the sovereignty is disputed by China and Japan, is located at Ningbo, within the region. Now, the PLA has six other military regions. It's being reorganized now, but at that time it had six. Nothing was said, but eyebrows must have been raised in Tokyo and Taipei and perhaps Washington, too, at the choice of Nanjing. Third example. Some years ago, one of our agencies concluded an MOU with China. It was a routine matter. But the MOU specified that in case of disputes, the controlling language would be Chinese. This broke a long-established principle of insisting that English should be the controlling language and establish a new precedent. Now, this was not a question of linguistic competency, but of Singapore's identity. Our political leaders have always conducted official business in English with Chinese leaders, even when they are fluent in Chinese. Now, none of these episodes resulted in irreversible damage to Singapore's interests. But they are symptoms, the ultimate cause of which I think is the concept around which our civil service is organized. At the apex of our civil service is the administrative service. This is based on the idea that senior public service leaders should be generalists, capable of taking on a range of appointments in different domains. More senior appointments in the ministries and statutory boards are filled by administrative service officers, rather than officers from specialist services. In my view, very few people can be equally good at everything. I, for example, would have been utterly useless in any other ministry than MFA. Now, the idea that generalists make the best senior public service leaders is based on a prior, perhaps largely unconscious assumption 
And this assumption is that there is only one type of logic that is valid across all domains. This is an assumption that leads to mistakes in domestic policy and is particularly antithetical to the requirements of a successful foreign policy. A world of sovereign states is a world of different and competing logics because in principle a sovereign recognizes no authority except its own. Now I don't want to push the point too far. In practice states hold many basic assumptions in common. Otherwise international relations as we know it would not be possible. But this still leaves a lot of space for what I term the Rashomon phenomenon operate within the ever-shifting kaleidoscope of possibilities that is the world of foreign policy. This is not a world that the administrative service generally finds congenial because control of events is not in its hands. But every ministry must now, at least to some degree, be responsible for conducting diplomacy. In a world of competing logics, it is the function of diplomacy to reconcile logics or at least minimize friction between different logics or when logics are irreconcilable to ensure that your logic prevails. This requires first to recognize and accept that there are other valid logics than, what, logics than one's own. Every successful diplomat from any country I have met has one quality in common. Empathy. By empathy, I do not mean warm and fuzzy feelings, but the ability to see the world through another's eyes and think as he does, the better to persuade him or to outmaneuver him. This is not something that comes naturally to many Singapore civil servants. Now, I don't want to leave you with the impression that all is lost. All is not lost. Our elected leaders understand that policies that are not or cannot be communicated in political logic, that is to say a logic that will appeal to and be understood by the intended audience, are policies that will fail. Political communication is improving. I am less confident, however, that this has, been, has yet been adequately hoisted in by all senior civil servants. Still, where politicians go, the civil service must eventually follow. The idea that the civil service is or ought to be politically neutral is a myth. A politically neutral civil service is to be found nowhere on earth. This is for the simple reason that the civil service is always and everywhere the instrument of the government in power. The civil service has a responsibility to give its political masters objective advice. But objective advice is not the same thing as being politically neutral. The civil service is obliged to carry out the instructions of the government, irrespective of whether those instructions are in accordance with its advice. And I find it remarkable that so many people, even some civil servants, do not seem to understand the relationship of the civil service to the government. Perhaps they do not want to understand. But ours is a pragmatic system that changes when it must. In 2013, a new program was introduced that enabled members of specialist services to be appointed to senior positions hitherto reserved for members of the administrative service. 
this was in effect an admission that the assumption that there is only one sort of logic valid across all domains is wrong. It was a good first step. What is not clear to me is whether individuals chosen to take up senior positions under the new program must leave their own services and join the administrative service in order to do so, or if allowed to remain in their own services, be remunerated on par with administrative service officers holding similar appointments. Unless, unless this is so, a caste may be perpetuated. The mindset of a caste is dangerous for a city-state. C.P. Snow attributed the decline of another city-state to its prior success. They were fond of the pattern, he said, of Venice. They never found the will to break it. Now, don't misunderstand me. None of this is a criticism of any individual. My criticism is of a system that incentivizes certain modes of thought and certain patterns of behavior. There is no doubt the system is changing. Whether it will change fast enough and far enough is another question. But even within the existing system, there are always exceptions. My two immediate predecessors and my successor in MFA are examples. And in case any of you are wondering, I have held these views throughout my career and never made any secret of them. The Public Service Division of PSD was probably relieved when I retired. <laughs> I found the PSD's announcement of my retirement in 2013 tellingly amusing. It said I had 31 years of service. But I joined the Foreign Service in 1981 and was Shanghai into the administrative service only in 1983. Do the maths. It was as if the PSD, by some Kafkaesque conjuration, had caused the time I spent as a foreign service officer to vanish. In fact, nobody seemed to be able to make up their minds about how long I served. The customary letters and certificates of appreciation I received all credited me with different lengths of service. Uh, changing mindsets is always difficult. Now, social cohesion. The US and China will take many years to reach a new modus vivendi. I doubt either will eschew any instrument as they compete for influence in our region. Our politics is becoming more complicated, the political space becoming more crowded, with civil society organizations and advocacy groups, advocacy groups, as well as opposition parties, all vying to shape policies. This is a favorable environment for external parties to try to cultivate agents of influence, which need not always be witting. As the only country in Southeast Asia with a ethnic Chinese majority population, and arguably the most cosmopolitan and westernized elite, Singapore faces unique vulnerabilities. My last lecture recounted how we once had to expel an American diplomat for trying to interfere in our domestic politics and alluded to the attitudes and activities of some European diplomats as well. Were these exceptional incidents never to be repeated since they had been caught with their hands in the cookie jar? I doubt it. The attitudes that gave rise to these episodes 
are so fundamentally a part of the Western sense of self that they will never go away. But now that the fierce glow of post-Cold War hubris has been dampened by its Middle Eastern misadventures in nation-building, and with China a, gro a growing preoccupation, I doubt too that the US has much appetite for trying to effect political change in Singapore in the same way as they tried in the late 1980s. At least for now, the Americans and the Europeans will probably indulge their missionary instincts with occasional meddling in second or third order issues. And they will have opportunities to do so. The culture wars are upon us. Some part of our population is clearly attracted to Western attitudes towards such issues as the death penalty and LGBT rights. Are these Singaporeans typical? Well, I share some, not only some, not all, of these attitudes, but I don't think so. Most Singaporeans are much more conservative. In any case, fundamentalist versions of both Islam and Christianity are not absent in Singapore too, and have very different attitudes which cannot be ignored, whatever we may think of them. These issues are not going to be resolved anytime soon. Sooner or later, some Western diplomat, blinded by ideology to our social and cultural fault lines, will again breach acceptable diplomatic conduct by trying to tip the balance in favour of some group he thinks shares values he believes to be universal. We'll just have to paddle their bottoms when we catch them. Now, China poses a more delicate and fundamental challenge. A previous lecture had drawn attention to the manner in which growing economic ties with China were changing calculations of interests in Southeast Asia and even in US allies such as Australia. China's relationship with the overseas Chinese communities of Southeast Asia is a closely related issue. Two years ago, the seventh conference of Friendship of Overseas Chinese Associations was held in Beijing. President Xi Jinping's speech at that conference was entitled The Rejuvenation of the Chinese Nation, nation is a dream shared by all Chinese. The specifics of the relationship of overseas Chinese communities to the Chinese Communist Party's narrative of the great rejuvenation beyond the obvious contributions to China's growth were not undoubtedly deliberately defined in detail. But the boundaries of the concept of nation are wide enough and vague enough to leave a lot of room for what was left unsaid. At the end of his speech, President Xi called upon the overseas Chinese to, and I quote, better integrate themselves into their local communities, end of quote. But the emotionally charged language of the speech made clear enough that the Chinese Communist Party also has other expectations. President Xi described overseas Chinese as members of the Chinese family, rejuvenation as a shared dream. He enjoined them to and I quote, never forget the blood of the Chinese nation flowing in their veins and called upon them to promote understanding to create a better environment for achieving the Chinese dream. 
Now, historically, Chinese approach towards the overseas Chinese of Southeast Asia has waxed and waned, according to China's shifting objectives. Southeast Asia was once an area of intense competition between the Chinese Communist Party and the Kuomintang for the allegiance of overseas Chinese. By the mid-1950s, with the Kuomintang penned in on Taiwan and wanting to cultivate friends at the Afro-Asian Bandung Conference, China disavowed responsibility for overseas Chinese communities in Southeast Asia, telling them to be good citizens of the countries in which they resided. That did not stop the Chinese Communist Party from using United Front tactics during the 1950s and 1960s to advance the interests of the Southeast Asian Communist Parties it supported, notably the Malayan Communist Party, which consisted mainly of ethnic Chinese. When Vietnam, with the support of the Soviet Union, invaded and occupied Cambodia in 1979, the imperatives of Sino-Soviet competition and rallying ASEAN against Vietnam took priority. China ceased all support for Southeast Asian Communist parties. The Cambodian issue preoccupied China in Southeast Asia throughout the 1980s. The priority was consolidating official relations with the ASEAN governments. From the 1990s, with Cambodia out of the way, China turned its attention to deepening and consolidating economic and diplomatic ties with Southeast Asia. The overseas Chinese communities were then largely regarded as a source of investment and economic expertise. In 1998, vicious anti-Chinese riots broke out in Jakarta during the run-up to Suharto's fall. China issued a mild admonition to Jakarta to treat Indonesian Chinese better and punish this, those responsible. Mild as it was, this broke with the practice of 40 years. Last year, shortly after racially fraught demonstrations in Kuala Lumpur, the Chinese ambassador to Malaysia made his way to Chinatown and close to where police had to use water cannon to break up a potentially violent anti-Chinese demonstration, pronounced the Chinese government's opposition to, among other things, any form of racial discrimination, adding for good measure that Beijing would not stand idly by if anything threatened China's relations with Malaysia. Now, what was the ambassador trying to do? Was he really trying to help the Malaysian Chinese? If he was, I don't think he did them any favours. Or was he trying to highlight China's clout in the context of rising competition with the United States? I think so. The Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman defended his actions as normal. Now this apparent shift towards positioning China as the protector of Southeast Asian Chinese has created many uncertainties with direct implications for Singapore. If anti-Chinese violence should again break out in Indonesia or Malaysia, a possibility that unfortunately cannot be ruled out, how would Beijing respond? Since China has associated the overseas Chinese with the Chinese Communist Party's narrative of the Great Rejuvenation, can Beijing still respond in as carefully calibrated a manner as it did in 1998? Will his own people let it do so? In 1998, the internet was in its infancy in China. 
There are now some 700 million netizens in China, eager, easily aroused through social media. How will China's response affect our neighbours' attitudes towards us? How would non-Chinese Singaporeans react? After 50 years, does our collective Singapore identity now override ethnic identities? Chinese leaders and officials refer to Singapore as a Chinese country who should therefore understand China better and hint at their generosity if we should explain China to other ASEAN countries. We politely but clearly and firmly point out that Singapore is not a Chinese country. We know all too well what they really mean by understand and explain. But they persist. The idea of a multiracial meritocracy seems alien to China, which seems incapable of conceiving of a Chinese majority country in any other way than as a Chinese country and a potential instrument of its policy. This mode of thought is, I think, deeply embedded in Chinese culture and political practice and will not change. As China becomes more confident and assertive, it will probably become more insistent. It would be prudent not to underestimate the resonance that the idea of Singapore as a Chinese country linked to a rising China could have with some sections of our population. We are not immune to these visceral seductions or to the economic inducements that some other ASEAN countries have eagerly embraced. There are many potential avenues through which China could bypass the government to directly exercise influence or try to exercise influence on our people. China still has a United Front Work Department under the Communist Party's Central Committee. If we were foolish enough to accept or compelled to concede to the characterization of Singapore as a Chinese country, this would not only provoke a counter-reaction from other major powers, more critically, the multiracial compact of social cohesion which is the foundation of independent Singapore's success, would at least be severely strained, if not entirely broken. Once lost, this foundation will be extremely difficult, perhaps impossible, to rebuild. But it would also be foolish to alienate China, which must be a significant factor in our economic future. Maintaining a good relationship with China while preserving the autonomy to pursue our interests as we define them is the fine line we must walk. We have so far managed this delicate balancing act. But Singapore is only 50 years old. I doubt all our compatriots fully understand the complexity of the contradictory forces at play upon us. Many younger Singaporeans who take the only Singapore they have known for granted are skeptical about our inherent vulnerability. Some dismiss vulnerability as a scare tactic designed to keep the PAP in power. Since we do not yet have a self-correcting internal equilibrium, sooner or later equilibrium may have to be enforced by the coercive powers that are the legitimate monopoly of the state, including the powers of the Internal Security Act, or ISA. It would be at least prudent to keep such instruments in reserve and not discard them as some opposition parties would naively have us do. 
The use of the ISA for this purpose, if it comes to that, will almost certainly be depicted as political by those who seek to seek the ISA's abolition and cause problems for us with the US and Europe. But that would be the lesser evil. We need to do a much better job of national education and are paying the price for de-emphasizing history in our national curriculum. What now passes as national education is ritualized, arousing as much cynicism as understanding. Knowledge of our own history should not be only a matter for specialists. The controversy over the 1963 Operation Coast Law and whether those detained were part of the Communist United Front exposed the extent to which the public lacuna of understanding may allow puerile and pernicious views to gain currency. Our understanding of history must, of course, be constantly revised. But critical historical thinking is not just a matter of brain white when the established view is black, or black when the established view is white. This was not just an academic exercise. For some, it was a politically motivated attempt to cast doubt on the government's overall credibility by undermining the government's narrative of, on one particular historical event. I understand that steps have been taken to revise our history curriculum. It will take time for this to have an effect, but the problem is at least recognized. Ladies and gentlemen, mine is a council of realism not a council of despair. I am not pessimistic about Singapore's ability to cope with the complexities ahead of us. We have coped with far worse, with far less on our side. We will cope if we continue to be clinical in our understanding of our own situation and hard-headed about what may need to be done. We will fail only if we lose our sense of vulnerability because that is what keeps us united, keeps us agile, and keeps us alert. Thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you. Um, thank you. You've come to the end of this lecture series. I'd hoped to get through all five without causing undue controversy. Um, the wish was granted first four lectures. Um, I don't think uh, <laughs> this lecture would pass similarly unnoticed. Um, you've taken to task the Workers' Party, the SDP, the Admin Service of the Singapore Civil Service, and China. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I'm sure there are lots of questions, um, and hopefully um, lots of um, um, uh, demanding questions. And I welcome the first. Questioner, whoever it is. Yes, please, go ahead. Good evening, uh, Mr. Janadas, Ambassador, everyone else here. Uh, President-elect Duterte, what does that mean for Singapore and for ASEAN, please? I haven't the slightest idea, and I would suspect most Filipinos haven't the slightest idea what it means for them as well. Uh, President Duterte is an outlier. <laughs> Um, he has said many things in the course of his uh, campaign. 
uh, it's difficult to know at this stage what he means and what he doesn't mean, what was just campaign rhetoric and what was, may give a clue to what his policy direction may be. But it does seem that he may be willing to take a somewhat different approach towards the South China Sea issue. I don't think he will give up Philippines claims, uh, but he may take a different approach vis-a-vis -vis China uh, on the South China Sea claims. At least he has hinted so. But frankly, Caroline, I absolutely have no idea. Good evening. My name is Kevin Yao. I'm an NUS cleaner. Uh, my question, right, is that your, the focus of your narrative has been on states, nation states, uh, and uh, the actions, but what about uh, non-nation-state non actions, like for example, climatic change and the impact of what you call it, climatic change on uh, Singapore, and uh, also on a post-antibiotic environment and its impact on Singapore. The post-what, sorry? Post-antibiotic environment. I, I, I don't get you. Uh, a world in which antibiotics do not work. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, those are good questions. They are not actions created by states, but they are certain actions that, whose effect has been the result because of human action. I think that's fairly well established in both these cases. Now, in my first lecture, I told you that this is a more than usually uncertain and ambiguous time. International action, effective international action needs leadership. But after the Cold War, there was no strategic imperative for any country to follow U.S. leadership, which is, and the U.S. is still the only global power, except on an ad hoc and sporadic basis. One of the consequences of that, which I did not mention, is that international action on issues such as what you mentioned is going to be at best suboptimal. I mean, the Climate Change Conference came to some sort of conclusion in Paris, but it is widely recognized that this is the best that could be, but it was not good enough. <laughs> Even if everybody does everything they said they would do, it would, not, it would slightly, only slightly slow global warming and not really deal with the substance of the issue. I, I would guess that the same would be true of antibiotics. And, you know, and nuclear proliferation and all kinds of transnational global issues that you may care to, to name. No questions on domestic policies? Please. If, uh, by the way, if you could just introduce yourself before you ask your questions. Please go ahead first and then you next. Um, hi, I'm Gillian with IPS, but maybe I could just pose these questions as a citizen. I was rather startled by uh, Indonesia's reaction to us when we issued a warrant for a representative of a company uh, um, uh, who didn't show up for an interview to talk about how his company that's operating in Indonesia would manage the issue of forest fires this year. Um, the reaction seems so disproportionate. I mean. Uh, questions were raised on that side about whether we were undermining their sovereignty. 
uh, that uh, there would be a review of all kinds of uh, partnerships and collaborations we would have had with them. Um, could you help just an ordinary citizen sort of understand uh, what's going on and, and should we therefore be alarmed? Uh, you talked about us being uh, loud in our own sense of complacency. So what does this indicate to us? Uh, will there be uh, a very res robust response on, on airspace, maritime space, and all those things? My second question is you talked about how perhaps on, in the politics section of your lecture, uh, there might be ways in which we can discuss foreign policy uh, more calmly, more clinically, but more broadly so that not just politicians, but presumably, again, citizens like me uh, would have a way to uh, share our views, maybe not always the right ones, not realist enough or much too idealistic, but, but that we would then build a broader consensus about where our national interests lie. Thank you, Ambassador. Okay, uh, those are good questions, Julian. You were surprised, I'm surprised you were surprised at the Indonesian reaction. I was not at all surprised. When you have the vice president of a country telling you to be grateful of the oxygen and, f and forget about the haze, why should you be surprised? <laughs> uh, it's quite typical. This particular person, first of all, said we should do our part. If you recall, Minister of Environment, City, right? Somebody, some wit on Facebook said she should be called, not Siti something, Sini Baka. <laughs> anyway, first of all, she says, Singapore should do its part, don't just complain. So do we, we do our part, and she says, this is not the part we wanted you to do. <laughs> so what? You know, I am not surprised. Indonesia has not yet reached a stable post-Suharto equilibrium. It is still struggling to impose coherence on a fairly incoherent polity. That was perhaps understandable in the immediate aftermath of uh, Suharto's fall, but that was 1998. How many years is it since? Professor, uh, <coughs> President SBY did, I think, manage to restore a measure of coherence. But what he did seems to be slowly unraveling with different ministers saying different things. And the same minister, as I just pointed out, saying the same thing, different things on the same issue at different times. Well, what underlies it all is a huge sense of nationalistic entitlement. Um, there is a very strong belief in Indonesia, that we are a Chinese country. And they project upon us all the uh, anxiety and angst and their attitudes towards their own Chinese population. In a sense, the Indonesians see us as a chupong writ large. They believe that our prosperity is by their leave and favor because of their kindness and their generosity, and therefore we owe them. And so when they burn down forests and pollute the atmosphere, we should just shut up. But of course we can't because we are a sovereign state. So we have to do what we must. As you pointed out, this guy defied our laws. And we have to take some action. Right? Uh, I don't see how it is 
a derogation of their sovereignty because he broke our law. I mean, he obviously broke their law too, but it's for them to take, uh, take, uh, take uh, action against him. But the law he broke was the law for not turning up <laughs> when, when he was told to turn up, <laughs> legally required to turn up. But there is also another strain of Indonesian nationalism that is not merely loud and assertive, but in which the loudness and the assertiveness actually mask uh, inner insecurity. The question is always asked somewhere in the subconsciousness of Indonesia, how is it that we, a huge country, with very talented people, and Indonesians are talented, with vast national resources, does not do as well as we ought to, or we think we ought to do, as befits a country with a long historical tradition, with all the advantages we have. And the answer is always, it must be somebody else's fault. Because otherwise, it, it requires them to confront their own shortcomings. And that very nationalism prevents them from doing that. Now, we live next to Indonesia, we better damn well get used to it, that's all. Because they are not going to change. And we are not going to change. We are not going to accept the position they want. As I said during my lecture, the position they would like us to be is a subordinate one. Can we, as a sovereign state, accept that? Can we breathe haze happily because of the oxygen that Indonesia allegedly provides in other months of the year? What will our own people think of the government? Now, your second question, I think it really boils down to national education, as I, I mentioned briefly at the end. We don't do a good job. I, I don't think our universities, at least in the political science departments, do a good job of teaching international relations. It's not really the university's fault because the entire study of international relations, the entire study of all social science, has turned inwards on itself and, you know, and, and scholars are just speaking to each other nowadays in many fields rather than to a wider audience. You don't get any points speaking to a wider audience. Uh, you don't get tenure, you don't get credit, you know, if anybody actually understands what you say. <laughs> yeah? Well, we can't do anything about the university, but I think in our schools, something I understand. If you recall, I think it was my third lecture, a JC student um, asked a question which she said her teachers had told her, which I found so shocking. After that, I went to the Ministry of Education and said, let me look at your history cur curriculum. <laughs> and they said it's in the process of being revised, which is a good thing. And I had a talk with them, and I think they are in the right direction. But it will take time. In the meantime, we can have discussions like this. I mean, this is one of the purposes I... I had when Janada snookered me into doing this series of lectures, is to expose some of these things that are quite obvious to people in the foreign ministry and maybe in the Ministry of Defense and some other ministries, but not very obvious to the population as a whole. Uh, it's a start. What will become of it, I have no idea. But that's all you can do. Hi, uh, good evening, Ambassador. Uh, my name is Chen He. I'm currently serving my NS. Um, and I just had a quick
quick question about what you talked about in terms of policy making in Singapore. Um, on the one hand, you cautioned us about the risks of a civil service or parts of the civil service working in institutional silos. Um, but on the other hand, you also seemed a little bit critical of the administrative service and uh, its uh, approach of sort of training generalists that are exposed to maybe the challenges of different portfolios. Um, so I was wondering, I mean, it seems to me there's a bit of a tension here. And I was wondering how you... Uh, there is indeed a tension here. That's I mean, a very good question. That's a very good question. There is indeed a tension here. Now, my quarrel with the administrative service is what I tried to explain. I don't believe every... You need some generalists. There's, there's no doubt about that. You need some generalists. But the assumption until relatively recently when they changed, they tweaked the policy a little bit, was that only generalists should, should serve all the uh, senior positions. Now, I think this is contrary to human nature. People cannot be equally good, no matter how smart you are, at everything. And the assumption underlying that was what I tried to expose, that there is only one kind of logic that is valid across any domain. And I think that is simply not true. It's certainly not true in the foreign affairs field. Now, this is changing. This is changing. I'm not saying get rid of all generalists, you know, by the way. Huh? Uh, uh, this is changing. And, and I described one of the changes. Is it changing fast enough? is the acknowledgement that there is not only one kind of logic uh, internalized enough, I'm not so sure. I'm very sure our political leadership has internalized it far more than our civil service. Because if they don't, they will lose their jobs at elections. <laughs> as simple as that. <laughs> All right? If they cannot explain things to the people in terms of political logic, they will lose their elections. Uh, that is not necessarily populism. It is explaining complex things in a, in a way that can be understood by everybody. And that is what is the essence of political logic, which is not the same as, say, economic logic or, or administrative logic or other kinds. Now, I'm not too pessimistic because, as I said, if the political issue changes, the civil service must follow because every civil service is the instrument of whatever government may be in power. And if you don't know that as a civil servant, well, you ain't going to be a civil servant very much, very long, uh, or you ain't going to be progressing in your civil service career. Uh, in fact, this is not a startling thought. I don't know whether you paid attention to the speech our Prime Minister made at the administrative service dinner uh, some weeks ago. He said more or less the same thing in, in, much, in a much more elegant and... Uh, way than I am capable of. He's the PM after all. <laughs> but he said more or less the same thing. So that tension is not necessarily a bad thing. Huh? You need some journalists, you need some specialists. What, what I was quarreling is the idea which has not entirely gone away, I think, that only journalists should occupy all the top positions. Um, I, I give you an example, a personal example. When I became a PermSec, second PermSec first, you have to go for, promoted to the rank that you can, you have to go to the PSC for interview. The first thing that the PSC said that, you know, you, are, you had a very specialized career, didn't you? I said, yeah, and I'll be quite useless anywhere else. So that was the end of that discussion. And they, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
uh, and they promoted me. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> you need both. What is the mixture you need? Uh, where, where, where you need specialists, where you need journalists, this is a constantly shifting target. And that kind of tension can be creative. What is not creative if you say, no, there's only one logic, only journalists should take all these positions, which was the attitude, and I suspect deep down somewhere is still a lingering attitude. In the old days, journalists in the British Empire used to mean people who knew only Greek and Latin. Yeah. Um, now I don't know what it means. Oh, that's the uh, other extreme. Yeah, the other extreme. <laughs> um, but I want to make one um, uh, indicate slight disagreement with uh, our speaker. Um, I don't think it is accurate to say that there is no such thing as a politically neutral civil service. I think it would be more accurate to say there is no such thing as an independent civil service. The civil service is not independent of the government of the day. The judiciary is independent of the government of the day. It's a separate body of government. Um, what the civil service is, it has to, as Mr. Blari Kausikan said, it has to do the bidding of the government of the day. It is not independent, it is impartial, which is a different thing. Impartial in the sense that it doesn't take political sides, but it is not independent. I think that is the fundamental misunderstanding that people have when they demand that the civil service should be independent. It is not independent in the British, in, in Britain. It is not independent in any other jurisdiction uh, that we know of. I have no quarrel with that. He has stated the same point in a different way, yeah, maybe it, a more slightly different way. way. <laughs> slightly different way, but it is. Um, oh, okay. The, 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 the civil service doesn't take political okay. sides. Uh, uh, a politically neutral, uh, if a civil service is politically neutral, it is because it has to serve whatever government is in power. In that sense, it is politically neutral. No other sense. That's right. <laughs> Good evening, Ambassador. My name is Adrian. I'm a teacher. Um, I hear what you say about the need for national education. I definitely agree. Um, I have quite a concern, however. Um, when I look at uh, a curriculum, no matter how much it has been revamped, uh, with the best of intentions, is only as good as the people that deliver it. And um, the, I think that this, um, this uh, lack of national education has gone on for so long that the prevailing sentiment that I see among my younger colleagues, especially those in their 20s, uh, seems to be that they think that anyone who tells them about Singapore's vulnerabilities is spewing propaganda. With, with that kind of a backdrop, no matter how much the national education changes, I, I, I worry that um, the message will not get across to the students because the teachers themselves don't buy it. Um, how might we be able to reverse this, especially when we're talking about adults and not just at the student level? You are absolutely correct because I had exactly the same discussion with the people who are trying to revise the history curriculum and I asked them how, who is going to teach this thing. <laughs> you know, the people doing the history curriculum are historians or at least they, they have access to historians. And, and I said the problem is really with the teachers, not that the teachers are bad, you know, that the teachers don't know enough except to read out what's in the curriculum. Now, it's a, it's a serious problem. As, that's what I meant. We are paying the price for de-emphasizing history in our national curriculum. 
the only way I, and we had quite a long discussion when I, I forced myself into the Ministry of Education and <laughs> talked to these people, and I said, look, I, I don't know what happened. There used to be a program. I don't know where it's still going on. Uh, there used to be a program when I and other permanent secretaries and deputy secretaries were asked to go and talk to groups of teachers, not very large groups, not very small groups, about various aspects of national policy, not necessarily foreign policy, you know, and answer questions and try to help in whatever small way, give them a better understanding so that when they read a curriculum, they know something of the considerations that went into this decision or that decision, and so they can explain things better. Now, I don't know whether that program is still going on. Probably not since, you know... Uh, I uh, have been in MOE for 14 years. I have never encountered such a... The last, <laughs> the last time I was invited to do this, or when I heard that it was still going on, must be in sometime in the early 2000s. And I suspect it was the initiative of some principles, you know, <laughs> rather than a nation. I think you have to do, just do that. You've got a lot of people. You can get ex-civil servants, you can get ex-military officers, you can get ex-politicians uh, ex too, you know, uh, uh, of various kinds, you know, uh, not necessarily uh, all in one thing, to, to talk to teachers, to open themselves to be questioned by teachers, because you have to educate the educators first, right? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I had a, quite a long discussion on, with, with uh, the people trying to revise the history curriculum. And I'm afraid the only rather lame answer we could come up with is what I've just given you, you know? Um, Thank you, Ambassador. I sympathize with the view that our national education or history education is much lacking, but I doubt very much if the best curriculum will solve the problem. Um, in America, for example, you know this, Somebody says it's history. Mm, it's, it's over. Huh? It's over. It doesn't matter. It's history. In the Middle East, when people say it's history, it means it's still over. I'm going to kill you tomorrow because it's history. <laughs> so, and you know, even speaking about Singapore's vulnerabilities, talk about water, talk about our small size, talk about our regional relations, very few Singaporeans are aware of those very few people remember the historical reasons for our vulnerabilities. We just crossed the causeway for any number of Malaysians who are still aware of those things. Why? Because those vulnerabilities have still not been resolved for them. When they say it's history, it means the issues of race, language, religion are still very much present. In some ways, we are paying the price for being successful. Of being successful. Well, the best national education is actually events. Yeah. When something happens, you take advantage of it. When, for example, uh, Indonesians make contradictory statements, you should try to take advantage of it to excuse those a real event to explain. That's better than you know an abstract explanation. For example, I always credit Dr. Mahathir with new water of getting acceptance of new water. Uh, it just made everybody so fed up that, okay, we'll do it, you know? So we'll bring our, <laughs> we'll bring our own urine, right? 
so one thing you can do, I suppose, at least the government can do, because uh, it has to be the government, I don't see who else, or academics if they're so inclined, when some event happens, use it, take advantage of it, to try, however minimally, to explain what it means in its larger context for us. Evening, uh, Professor and Ambassador. Um, you spoke of the need of, sorry, I'm Nia Gupta, I'm an entrepreneur here in Singapore. Um, you spoke of the need for a small city-state, um, the importance of it being open, in particular as it applied to trade of free goods for economic viability. I'm curious to hear, would you apply the same type of thinking to labor mobility? No, I mean, there are small <laughs> states. If you, have lab if you have perfect labor mobility in ASEAN, everybody will come here and what will happen? Right? No, consistency is an overrated virtue. It was a great American who said a foolish consistency is a hobgoblin of inferior minds. You have to pick and choose. You cannot have perfect labor mobility, say, within ASEAN. This is an ongoing issue, by the way, in, the, in discussion in ASEAN. Right? Because, very simple, you have, you have perfect labor mobility, everybody will move here, and where will we be? We already have a lot of trouble with a foreign labor, which we do need. <laughs> and that's a very calibrated kind of thing, and still it causes trouble. No, you have to, be, you have to pick and choose. It's quite clear. What I meant is it's quite clear. Your domestic market is small. Therefore, you have to link yourself to larger the rest of the world. Uh, and the rest of the world cannot only be Southeast Asia, but it has to start from Southeast Asia. But it doesn't mean you uncritically or, you know, promiscuously open yourself to each and every influence. That's what I meant, I said that you know, openness also does create vulnerability. Uh, no, you have to be very selective of what you do. But it's quite clear, if you are an entrepreneur, if you try to make a living only in Singapore, whatever, you think you can? Up to a point, maybe. Up to a point, maybe. I don't know what kind of entrepreneur. If you have a cafe, a restaurant, maybe. It's okay. <laughs> uh, but if you have larger ambitions of you in a different field of business, I don't think you can. That's the dilemma. Hi, my name is Joel. I'm a full-time national serviceman. Um, hi, Ambassador. Um, I, want, I had a follow-up question about national education. You mentioned that we don't understand our history and that national education has become ritualized, right? Um, and yet you seem to disdain the notion of competing historical narratives when it comes to for example, Operation Cold Store. Um, take, putting aside the validity of those alternative narratives, don't you think that in order to revive national education and build interest, that we would need to have that kind of open discussion and debate? No, you can have open discussion and debate. My, my example was the really puerile way in, in that the alternative narrative came out. There was a denial there was any such thing as a communist united front and that, that the people in the communist front were communists. Yeah, of course, not everybody in a communist united front is a communist. And they wouldn't know where the communists are. That's the essence of a united front. Now, this is this kind of silly debate, what I say, you know, if, if the establishment view is black, say white. That is not, to my mind, a critical debate. That is, is just, you know, being contrarian. Now, yeah, there is a lot of room for a critical debate. As I said, history is constantly being revised. Or, or at least our understanding of history 
must constantly be revised. But there must be some connection with reality, you know. You can't say, I don't think this is so, therefore it is not so. Which is what debate on, say, the internet, social media usually amounts to. Right? No, uh, no, you're absolutely right, you have to. But I use that as an example of the kind of debate, that a stupid debate, that happens because there isn't a wide enough understanding of some basic facts by, by people. If, now, if, if there was a broad enough understanding, if there was a broad enough understanding of the kind that exists in certain issues in Malaysia, say, I don't think the people who started that kind of debate could have got away with the kind of arguments uh, they did get away with. They can get away with it only because most people don't know. <laughs> but don't you think there isn't a broader debate? There isn't a broader understanding because we deem some of the debate as stupid and shut it down. No. I mean, a debate doesn't mean say I agree with you, no. If you say something stupid, a debate is also I tell you this is bloody stupid for the A, B, C. And then if you raise the issue, you better be able to take it, you know. <laughs> right? And, and defend yourself. If you cannot defend yourself, then you don't have a position. Uh, no, I think the, the, the root cause is, and there were very good reasons why we de-emphasize history. Because our curriculum is so crowded anyway, you know. Uh, you, you, if you're just doing national service, you must be closer to school than, than any of the rest of us are, right? Uh, and you must have, you know, quite suffered. I see my, my, my daughter suffering in school. The, the curriculum is so uh, intense, you know. Uh, no, but I think there is a price to be paid. There's always a trade-off. Huh? But a debate doesn't mean a free-for-all, you know. A debate has to be informed. It has to be have some relationship with facts. It has to be, try to expand the, 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 the area of consensus building on what are generally accepted facts. <laughs> huh? You can't just say, you can't call it a debate if you know you say A, I say B. And why? Because you say A, I say B. Huh? <laughs> That's not a debate. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Ambassador. Next question. All right, good evening, Ambassador and Moderator. I'm Donovan. I'm a final year undergraduate um, who is, of course, going to be no more undergraduate because I've had my exams already. Anyway, okay. my question is a follow-up from his question with regards to debates. So, of to, course... So sorry? States. Question. Debates, debates. Debates, okay. Mm. So, for, so, you mentioned about national education. Of course, I agree with you. We should, of course, uh, we should revamp it and actually expose more people to actually understanding some of the key issues that lead us to what we are today. Unfortunately, there's another problem which I find when, say, for example, I've, my friends and I sit down at a coffee shop and we talk about things, and that is political polarization. So that is to say, we can have a debate or anything, but at the end of the day, the guy just says, oh, you are just uh, spotting propaganda because you are saying something that someone else says, uh, basically the government. Lah. And then, basically, it is a misconception of the government and the political party per se. And so, then the question is, so since this is a domestic political issue, how then do you foresee this political polarization problem uh, moving on, say, for the next few elections? I have no idea. But <laughs> polarization is, you know, in, in, as I said, like I said just let's, let's stick to what I know, huh? foreign policy, right? Now, if you are in a country with many centuries of history, uh, uh, you know, the debates, even uh, unless you are a Donald Trump, uh, then uh, all bets are off. Uh, okay, <laughs> the debates are generally within quite broad parameters of things that, irrespective of what your political views are on a particular issue, you 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 have some conception of the broad national interest that everybody can 
accept. I don't think we have it here. No. Some degree of give and take, you know, somebody, you are, you are PAP stooge, you know, this and that, that were, you know, this is nature of politics, you know, if you are so thin-skinned as not to be able to take that, then, I'm, uh, then you know, it can't be helped. Huh? But, yeah, you know, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, what is possible or not possible for a small country? Right? A small country cannot be closed. Similarly, as the, the lady, the entrepreneur said, the small country cannot be totally open in all dimensions. Now, if we can agree on that broad thing, then we can have a sensible debate within some parameters, right? On, on some issues. Uh, do we have that yet? I'm not sure, you know. If you say even a coffee shop with your friends, you don't have it. <laughs> uh, and, and the final result is to accuse you or, some, or you accuse somebody of being a, P, a government stooge, huh? Then, then we don't have that parameter, obviously. Please go ahead. Yeah. Uh, good hey, evening, you. Ambassador. So, uh, firstly, I would like to point out that uh, uh, well, your point might be uh, well, well, your understanding of Donald Trump might be of uh, what? Your understanding of Donald Trump might be uh, appropriate. Some, of, uh, I think, many of of Singaporeans are, are like don't have like you said the don't understand the basic facts before uh, jumping to ju uh, conclusions about Donald Trump. But not, that's not my question. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, my question is, uh, like you said, we should, uh, we should revise national education so that our students can understand our history better. So what about those who have already graduated, like our friends in national service? Uh, do you don't care about their understanding of our, our country? Well, if he's in national service, he must be an even more severe victim of ritualized national education. <laughs> because there are national education classes in national service. When I was in national service, I had both to endure it and to give them, and people had to endure me giving them. <laughs> no, I think, you know, it's a, it's a process you have to, if you have a basic understanding, if you have a basic interest, you can continue throughout your life reading. Actually, people make fun of the Straits Times, and I am not without guilt in that, <laughs> in the respect too. But as far as international news is concerned and regional news is concerned, Straits Times is in fact far better than many newspapers even in Western developed countries. I'm not talking about New York Times or Washington Post, but the smaller newspapers is much better. So if you are interested... Is, it's probably the best. Yeah, in this region definitely is the best. All right. If if you are really interested, there are many avenues where you can you you are not there is no dearth of information, right? It's whether you want to use what is available to you or not. Now that it, it has to be. I know nobody can make you be interested in something, right? But you know your you know Donald Trump uh, is no no. I tell you why Donald Trump is performing a very useful function up to now. He has made everybody rethink their basic assumptions about American politics. Because everything we thought we knew is obviously, at best, only partially right. And, but okay, if he gets elected, that's another matter. Let's see what he'll behave. <laughs> okay, Thank you. next question. Good day, Ambassador. Uh, thank you so much for delivering the past five lectures. I have personally learned a lot. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you, Director. So, um, 
just a short question. What is the political reality of a Malay Muslim Singaporean in a majority Muslim? Uh, what is the political reality of being a Malay Muslim Well, I uh, since Singaporean? I'm, not Malay, I'm neither Malay nor Muslim, I don't know. I suggest you ask a Malay Muslim friend. Not I, me. I see. In, in, in the eyes of um, uh, being ambassador and uh, being in a well, I'm an ambassador, but I'm not Malay, I'm not Muslim, so I have not the slightest idea what they experience and what they feel. No, I didn't quite understand the question you're asking about. The political reality of being of a Malay, Malay Muslim minority, minority in yes. Singapore. Yeah. yeah, I know, I understand the question perfectly, but I cannot understand it. I cannot answer it, neither can he. <laughs> because neither of us is Muslim nor Malay. I suggest you go and find a Malay Muslim friend and ask him. Yes. If you don't have a Malay Muslim friend, I suggest you make one immediately <laughs> and then ask him. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, maybe if I can just rephrase my question very quickly. Yeah. Um, Singapore being Malaysia and Indonesia, and with the rising probably uh, Islamic fundamentalist values and everything else, um, what's in store for Singapore? Well, it is a matter of concern. There are, that, you know, Malaysia has changed it's unrecognizable. Malaysia today, and compared to Malaysia, say, 30 years, 40 years ago, it's quite unrecognizable. And I don't think it can go back to that. Right? Indonesia is a bigger country. These changes are much more diffuse. There is obviously a debate or a struggle going on in the Muslim world. Uh, you can see in, in Malaysia, not every Muslim in Malaysia is equally happy with the direction in which the manner in which Islam is being defined in Malaysia has drifted, ditto for Indonesia. Now that is something that is within the Muslim community or the Muslim country to settle. No outsider can, can really play a role in this thing, you know, a useful role anyway. Uh, what can we do? We can watch it, we can try to understand it, and we can prepare ourselves for all the eventualities. That's one of the reasons why we have to be strong and we have to be, have a strong deterrent to, keep, no matter what eventuality, keep our neighbours at least reasonably honest in their dealings with us. Thank you, Ambassador. You know, a lot of things for a small country, yeah, it's like the weather, you know. Donald Trump is also a weather factor. You can't change it, so you have to adapt yourself to it. Prepare yourself to it. If you think it's going to rain, for Christ's sake, buy an umbrella and keep it. Only in Singapore, you don't need to buy umbrellas anywhere. They're walkways all over the place. <laughs> Still get wet, lah. <laughs> uh, we have, I think, time for one last question. Um, for some reason, almost all the questioners, which is very good, have been under 30. Good one. Uh, yeah, it's very good, but can we have at least one above 30? You're above 30? Uh, yes, I am. Okay. I'm Kenneth, uh, representing in my personal capacity. And, um, Sorry, where are you from? Uh, in my personal capacity. I'm here with my son, actually. Okay. So thank you for the very insightful and instructive lectures, and quite entertaining as well. Uh, you mentioned earlier that a robust defense capability helps underpin stable regional relations. Yeah. You also mentioned something about our downward demographic trends over the longer term. 
Um, how do you see that playing out in a foreign policy arena in the region if our defense capacity, of, not capability, but capacity uh, starts to drop over time? Thank you. Demographic factors, defense. Demographic factors. Demographic factors I, I, degrading your uh, defense capability, but, right? Yeah, in the context so of our lectures, smaller, less soldiers. Well, I don't know. The conventional answer is that you, you use technology as a force multiplier and so on. And you, you know all this, right? Or the, yeah. Our IPS fellow last year suggested conscripting women. Yes, that will give you access to the other half the way. of the uh, population. Conscripting women, I think any, anybody in the IDF, if you get them alone, away from a microphone, will tell you this was a big mistake the Israelis did, but they cannot get out of it. No, serious. And you can ask them. No, I, I, I don't know what is the technical solution to this, right? That is for the people in the SAF to figure out, and I believe they are busily trying to figure out. But I do know this. As I said, defense and diplomacy are two sides of the same coin. If you don't have a credible defense, you cannot have a successful diplomacy. You don't have to wave your guns all the time, but it, everybody should know it's there somewhere. At the same time, if you go to war, every war must end, and it must end through diplomacy. So these things are complementary. What you mentioned is I'm sure there are people in MINDEF have been thinking about this, for a very, very long time. I don't know what answers they have come up with because this can be quite technical and I don't pay much attention to the technicalities of these things. But you have put your finger on a real issue. But I don't think conscripting women is the answer. Thank you. What? Well, because judging from my, what I have learned from the Israeli experience, because they don't know what to do with them. There are certain combat roles they can't use. And there are a lot of them, and so what happens? They spend all their time becoming PAs. You go, you go, to, the, you go to the Ministry of Defense of Israel. There is a, a correlation between the, the, the seniority of rank and the prettiness of the PA. And several PAs. <laughs> Lots of PAs they have. Uh, okay, I've insulted Israel now. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Ambassador was, was supposed to be here, but she's not here. Uh, Ambassador's not here. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, one last question, and then another above 30 years old. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> so I look it. My name is Go Kim Seng, and uh, <clears throat> responding to your request from a more senior person. <laughs> 72 in a few days' time. Oh, you don't look yeah. it, man. <laughs> now, I've been a Singaporean. I stayed decade over overseas. And I've seen quite a lot of things happening in my time. And I realized that actually the game plan has changed. The, the scenario. The game plan. The game, game plan, plan has changed. The scenario today is a far cry used to. Uh, fortunately for myself, my son happened to be a games developer. My daughter is a scientist. So I'm a little bit in touch with the uh, uh, new tech developments. Yeah. Now I got a worry. Because we have uh, succeeded so well, done so much, and really acknowledged very widely, 
in view of this changing landscape, the technological era that we are now in, is our top leadership, is our civil service capable of the uh, new forms of thinking and acting which you spoke about earlier? Well, I would certainly hope so. And I think they need to do a few things which I did speak about which will make them more capable. But yeah, I think what you're talking about is big technological disruptions of the established way of doing things, right? Yeah, I mean, some things possibly we can anticipate, like I mentioned, Arctic Council, that's not really a technological disruption, but you have new kinds of icebreakers and so on, it, might, it, might, it, will, it will help, right? It will change things. Um, I hope we are looking forward. I don't think we are doing uh, so enough, possibly, but we probably do more than other people in this region. Now, whether there is enough or not, I don't know. I mean, that's the burden of what I was trying to say. <laughs> That is another way, in fact, you have recast my essential point in another way. Are we aware of the new kinds of vulnerabilities that may be may beset us? And that's exactly what C.P. Snow said of Venice in the, in the quote I made. Uh, they were fond of the pattern, they never found the will to break it. And in fact, it's a longer quote, he goes on to show how they did recognize things were changing but they did not have the will to break it. If you go to, I will insult the last country now. It's not really insulting, it's a country I'm very fond of. If you go to Japan, they know damn well they need a new labor policy, they need a new immigration policy, they need a new foreign labor policy, but they don't yet have the will to do it. Now, we are not so bad, but you have put your finger on the nub of it. You would, I don't know the answer. I think we do. Not good, not perfectly. And we can do better, certainly. There's room for improvement. But we will not know until that is upon us. Okay, on that note, um, the lecture series has ended. Um, Who's the next victim? Uh, I'm not ready to announce that <laughs> today. <laughs> um, just for... Your information, your obligations have not ended. Uh, <laughs> the lectures are to be collected into a book, um, which should be launched sometime within the next year. Um, <laughs> so we will have a book launch, and you can um, at least uh, repeat some of the themes. And hey, book launch? Yeah. I mean, I got to speak again. Uh. Well, you may, <laughs> you may want to and insult no, I a few more people. <laughs> um, now, but seriously, I think we have had two very good lecture series. Um, first, uh, Mr. Ho Kwang Ping, is, he's here. Um, and the second, Bilahari Kausikan. I, I hope we can match um, the two in the next uh, series of lectures, which will take place in the next academic year. Um, for those of you who don't know, the terms of the fellowship uh, requires us um, requires the fellow um, to deliver five to six lectures at the university, not um, somewhere else, so that students um, in the university can attend the lectures. And I'm very happy that this time around, um, in fact, most of your questioners have been students or recent students or about to be students. There were quite a few national servicemen who got up to ask questions. 
So thank you very much. I think it has been quite a, a, a whirlwind um, 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 with a few shipwrecks along the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I think, on the whole, a very instructive series of lectures. So please join me in thanking Mr. Bilari. Thank you.